Yeah, well, uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Joe Wolfe. I'm the Dean of Arts and Humanities at UCL. Um, you will have noticed we've got an empty chair at the front here. Uh, we are waiting for David Willits uh, to arrive. He, he's coming from another engagement, and um, clearly he's been held up. Uh, so what we're going to do is to start anyway in the hope that he'll be able to join us very shortly. Uh, because he, he, he's on a tight schedule, so he says, and, and has to go again. So with a, with a bit of luck, by the time I've done the housekeeping and so on, he'll, he'll arrive and we'll be on schedule. So as I said, thank you all very much for coming tonight. Um, this event is part of UCL's first festival of the arts. There's a question about what is the scope of the festival of the arts, or indeed this question, the future of the arts. And yeah, I'm a philosopher by background, so I'm used to making distinctions. In fact, that's pretty much all I do. So uh, here are a couple of distinctions. Uh, by the arts, do we mean arts in the sense of the performing arts, theatre, poetry, or do we mean arts and humanities more broadly? And when we're talking about the future of the arts, do we mean future of the arts, again, in the sense of performing arts or scholarship of the arts, as takes place in the universities? Um, the format for this evening is that I'll briefly introduce the panelists. I think only a brief introduction is necessary. If you didn't know who they were, you probably wouldn't be here. So I'll just say a few words about each of our panelists. Uh, and then I'll ask each one a single question. Uh, I'll talk for perhaps about five minutes. And there'll be a little bit of discussion at the table. And we'll open things up for questions. We're hoping to have about half an hour for questions. And then after that, uh, you're all invited to a drinks reception, which will continue until around about 8 o'clock. Um, the first of our panelists, uh, I'll introduce him in his absence and hope he can slip into place when he arrives, is, um, as you know, the Right Honourable David Willits MP. Uh, he's the Minister for Universities and Science, but he was also a PPE student at Oxford and the author of a very interesting book, called The Pinch, published in 2010, which has a subtitle, How the Baby Boomers Took Their Children's Future and Why They Should Give It Back. Uh, that was before the Conservative Party uh, or the coalition took power. Uh, our second panelist is Professor Malcolm Grant, who is provost and president here at UCL. In fact, he's been our provost and president for nine and a half years, slightly over nine and a half years. For the last few months, he has also been the first chair of the new uh, NHS commissioning board, and he leaves us in September to take that up as a full-time, I was going to say permanent role. I don't know if anything's permanent in the NHS, but certainly a, a, a full-time role. Uh, Malcolm is a lawyer by background and a great supporter of the arts and humanities at UCL. I keep telling him. And, um, uh, 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 the third speaker, in fact, I should have asked him to sit in order, but, but uh, they're not quite in order. The third speaker is Professor Lisa Jardine. Uh, Lisa is a fairly recent arrival at UCL. Uh, she's a professor of Renaissance studies here. Uh, her work spans a vast range of topics. She is a historian. She's a literary critic. She's a historian of science. She's also the chair of the Human Fertilization and, and Embryology Authority. And she's also the author of an exhibition catalogue of the work of Grayson Perry. And uh, Grayson Perry is our final speaker. He's a Turner Prize winning artist. 
He's known primarily for his work in ceramics, though he's recently turned to large-scale tapestries, uh, a series of six about the British class structure called The Narcissism of Small Differences. Um, this was a subject of a Channel 4 mini-series in which uh, we came to understand that he is a very interesting social commentator as well as an artist. And just to complete the UCL link, this was commissioned by a UCL philosophy alumni, one of my own students, uh, Tabitha Jackson, who is looking very embarrassed over there, uh, uh, having been mentioned. One of the reasons, of course, why we're so interested in the question about the future of the arts is current government policy. And that over the last few years, there have been a number of criticisms of government policy worrying about the effect it's going to have on arts and humanities inside the universities and out. Uh, perhaps there are three developments that have caused a lot of concern. One was the announced cut in government funding for arts and humanities students. So now uh, the universities don't receive any funding from the government for students in most of the arts and humanities disciplines. And that was conceived of by some critics as an assault on the arts and humanities in the universities. A second area is the school curriculum, that the you know, very recent discussions about changes in the school curriculum, it is said that the reforms that are in process at the moment will drive out the study of art and music. There will be too much concentration on very formal subjects and formal learning and not enough room for other activities in the school curriculum. And a third area is funding for the arts through the Arts Council. And that a number of artists and cultural organizations have been very worried about how they're going to survive in uh, austerity times of reduced budgets. So my question to David Willits was going to be, are these fair, are these fair criticisms? Um, that will be my question when he arrives. But in the meantime, I think uh, I'll ask Malcolm Brandt, perhaps, to respond to that. Five minutes or so. Right. Well, um, the question that was put to me was, do I agree with David Willits? <laughs> um, and the answer is, absolutely not. Um, I think it would diminish his reputation uh, globally were I to do so. Uh, and I can anticipate already what he's going to say. So if he doesn't turn up, um, we, 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 we can turn to that. Uh, David actually is a great champion of the arts uh, and a, a very fine intellectual in his own right. Uh, he has been, I think, to some extent corrupted by the unfortunate political process and uh, being a, a member of, of, a, of a difficult coalition government. But let me just deal with a few issues which I think are important when we talk about the role of the arts within a university. I find it difficult uh, to conceive of a university that does not have uh, flourishing arts, humanities, and social sciences. I understand there is one across the other side of London, but um, you, 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 you find it difficult to imagine how you can promote uh, what Joseph Priestley in the 18th century described as the arrangement of the furniture of the mind uh, without a university that takes seriously uh, the development of knowledge and of wisdom across all of, all of the disciplines. I don't by that pretend that we're always successful in promoting the conversations that we need to promote across the disciplines in an institution. I think we're all victims of a silo approach to our own disciplines of digging down more deeply uh, within uh, the boundaries of knowledge that we've inherited rather than going out more laterally into other areas uh, of, of intellectual attainment. 
But nonetheless, we have within universities something that is quite unique. Uh, nobody else has this. No government, uh, no private corporation. Only universities have this extraordinary array of knowledge uh, within their walls. Uh, and that is something which we are, I hope, this week celebrating. And anybody who's looked at this booklet will see just how extraordinary is the range of activity uh, that's being arranged uh, here at UCL. When our founding fathers got together in 1826, there were lengthy conversations about what would be the content of the curriculum here at what, um, in its early years, was called the University of London, quite properly, uh, until um, King's um, started up um, a few years later. But the, uh, let's leave that to one side. That's, that, that's, that's, that's a matter of, of history. But what came through very strongly was that this should be a university that was very different from the two ancient universities, but that arts and humanities would be at its heart. And so the original schools were arts, laws, and medicine. Uh, laws and arts were then merged together in what was called the general department with science, uh, whilst medicine continued to flourish alongside. But the critical issue was that in the great social foment of the early 19th century, uh, remember, the foundation of this place occurred uh, some way between the French Revolution and the Reform Act of 1832, which always puts it rather neatly um, in my uh, understanding of where the university's founding intellectual principles derive from. So arts and humanities were uh, at the heart. Our founding fathers uh, went on a poaching tour of Europe and the US. Uh, they recovered from Virginia University uh, the great classicist George Long, uh, who had been recruited by uh, Madison and Jefferson to um, be one of the founding professors at the University of Virginia. And it was always celebrated at Virginia that he had decided to leave Virginia and come to, uh, uh, to UCL. Indeed, uh, as David knows, David, yeah. lovely to see you. I, I, I was just being flattering about you earlier. Um, <laughs> but um, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the extraordinary um, effect of all of this was to create an institution that from the beginning was lively and intellectually challenging. Of our formal history of the first 100 years of UCL, the most interesting chapter is one entitled Early Quarrels. Uh, and, and early quarrels, uh, unlike today, uh, existed across the institution, uh, between the medics uh, and the lawyers, and between the arts and humanities and the other parts of the institution. But let me uh, trans transfer us now through to the 21st century. When Joe was making his introductory remarks, he touched upon the changes that have occurred in the funding of higher education, and in particular, the question around tuition fees. Uh, what has happened has been uh, that since last year, uh, the arrangements for students to come to university have been transferred from a system in which there was a significant government grant paid directly to universities to one in which government money is put into the student loan company uh, students will pay a fee of £9,000 set by the university itself, but may then borrow on advantageous terms from the student loan company. The consequence of that is that the fee is uniform for all students. Some subjects are very expensive to teach, uh, clinical medicine being the obvious example. Uh, some subjects are not so expensive to teach. So the consequence is, although the university uh, receives £9,000 for each student, it also receives a supplement for some laboratory subjects and in particular for clinical medicine. 
but the £9,000 fee for the arts and humanities subjects doesn't come with a supplement. But in any event, it reflects the previous funding situation. It doesn't reflect a cut in funding uh, in the arts and humanities. Indeed, those universities who are not blessed with science uh, and not blessed with a medical school I can actually run a pretty handsome business on arts and humanities uh, under the new fee regime. So I wanted to stress that. This, I don't see this as an assault on the arts and humanities. I see it as a future lifeline for the support of arts and humanities in our universities. But I think we should be looking well beyond this. One of the things that I believe universities should be doing is not just encouraging arts and humanities at <coughs> university, but arts and humanities before university and trying to ensure that we create a framework for bringing students into university uh, that advantages those who have studied both arts and sciences at school. Hence our new BASC program, a program uh, modelled on a liberal arts program of the US but updated and modified and adapted to the particular circumstances of the UK. I think a really stimulating uh, advance in our curriculum. Secondly, our establishment of, of the UCL Academy, uh, where we're trying to put into action that which we've always uh, argued for, which is that universities have a profound role in the development of school education in order to ensure that we do our best to raise the levels of attainment and aspiration in a school population. It's no point sitting at the entry door to a university and complaining that we're not attracting the brightest and the best because social disadvantage has meant that they're not uh, making their way to the best universities. We are committed to ensuring that a school which teaches the arts and humanities, at the UCL Academy, by the way, Mandarin uh, is the compulsory modern language. Uh, and it's, by the way, it's compulsory for staff as well. That's the real challenge. Uh, we're not going to introduce that at UCL uh, before next year. <laughs> but the, the excitement, the excitement, the sheer excitement of working with children and having them understand that the route to a university is an open door and not a restricted elitist point of a transformed uh, change to a different life. So I wanted to conclude by assuring you uh, that arts and humanities are as alive at UCL as this booklet indicates, uh, and that we are thoroughly committed to not only their continuation, but their advancement. Okay. Thank you very much, and may I welcome David Willits here. And, and I can now uh, complete my thought of saying I think we've assembled one of the most interesting panels that has ever graced this stage here at the, at the Welcome Collection. Um, so, D David, what, what I had done was to recite some of the standard criticisms people have made of the coalition government in relation to arts and humanities. So one was about the uh, reduction in government support for arts and humanities subjects in universities. Second was the narrowing of the school curriculum with the reforms that are in process. And third was the uh, reduction of the budget of the Arts Council. And I suppose that, that if one wanted to be as mean-minded as one could about this, that, and many people are, uh, that one, one could think that intentionally or not there has been a government policy of undermining or even attacking the arts and humanities. Uh, Malcolm, I, th I th think, has reassured us about part of that, but perhaps you could give us five minutes um, in response to that before we pass on to the next two panellists. 
Yeah, uh, well, well uh, thank you very much. And I do apologise for arriving late and missing the earlier... Well, no, you haven't had that yet. No, 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 oh, I see. You, you only missed mine. Right, it's all right, right David, right, you only right. missed mine. Right. Well, it better be very brief. <laughs> very, yeah. very, so you haven't... You, so you haven't right, well, very brief. Um, I, have, I can honestly say I've not sat around at any cabinet or com cabinet committee discussion where people have said... Those pesky historians, what a waste of money. All we need for the future is engineering. Mm -hmm. Now, it is true that there is an undercurrent in uh, the media and elsewhere on STEM uh, and a concern about STEM subjects, but there is not any um, sort of belief that one set of subjects are a sort of luxury that we can't afford and the other set of subjects are of crucial value. And I think the whole... Uh, one of the great bits of good fortune that we have in this country is that for a medium-sized economy, we have a research base and a range of university activities that is incredibly broad. And I would say our research base and um, cultural activities are as broad as any medium-sized economy. Now, it's true we've had to take some tough decisions because of the reducing the deficit. Uh, and... It's harder for me to talk about other departments where I'm less familiar with the figures, though I know even though the DCMS has had uh, significant reductions. Even there, the reductions in Arts Council funding have been partly offset by increases in lottery funding. But these are driven by the necessities of saving public expenditure, not a sort of plot to attack the humanities. And on Malcolm's, on, the eight, on higher education, which is the one I know the best, uh, I think the interesting story is the opposite. In fact, I think the interesting question is a cultural, uh, is the anxiety of people in the arts humanities, which in itself has an interesting cultural and social phenomenon worthy of further study. <laughs> because to talk just the arithmetic for a moment, and I forgive you, because, uh, and I fully understand these are inherently worthwhile activities in their own right, Particle physics, French literature are both worth studying because you wish to study them, not because you're doing it to raise GDP. But just to go through the figures, because those are being used as the test of our commitment, in the old regime, the so-called band D subjects, the subjects that had the lowest cost to teach, because by and large they didn't use expensive equipment, were getting teaching grant of approximately £2,300 and a fee of about £3,300. And added, that added up to about £5,700 of resource behind someone doing arts at this university. And there were then bands A, B, and C with various coming in at higher rates because of the costs of you know, engineering kit or medical science. What we did was that we removed approximately £4,000 of teaching grant from all subjects. And then, um, with the fees of £9,000, which of course students don't pay, we can have that argument tonight or another day if you wish, graduate repayment scheme really. But we've ended up with an average fee after waiver of about £8,200. So the arts, the arts and humanities student here, who's previously the, res the unit of resource behind them was about 5700 unit of resource behind them now is about 8,200. And that 8,200 means as a minimum, all the different disciplines were compensated for the loss of the 4,000 that they'd all suffered because the arts and humanities only lost 2,700. 
whereas other, the resource for teaching other subjects has gone up by about 20% in cash terms. For humanities, it's gone up by about 40%. And what I find interesting is that, nevertheless, people say to me, why are you doing these horrible things to the arts and humanities? So I think there is a social and cultural phenomenon here of this, I think, unnecessary and regrettable sort of defensiveness, sense of threat in the arts and humanities, which perhaps we might explore in the time that remains. Thank you very much. So, Lisa, you uh, reassured that the future for arts and humanities in the university is a bright one. Do you see any...? Well, I'm really uh, lucky because I'm neither... Um a minister, nor a provost and president. And so I can actually talk about the arts. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, uh, and it is a privilege. I mean, it is a privilege to have somehow survived this, this long in my career, um, being flighty enough to be able to talk about the nitty-gritty of the subjects that we work in, to, go, to, to still be a researcher, an active researcher with a research centre. So um, I want to say to you that um, the future for the arts and humanities mm. is extraordinarily exciting and bright. Um, and then I'm going to say, and half of the room is going to go, oh, I'm going to say, and the future's digital, right? Um, and then I, I could leave the room. Um, but of course, I'm not going to do that, because I actually am going to reassure those people in the room who are horrified at the idea of the digital encroaching on the arts and humanities. Um, I'm largely going to leave fine art to Grayson, genuflecting. Um, uh, the, I have come very recently to University College, and it's been an absolute revelation uh, in terms of the breadth of humanities um, activity and interest. I mean, I, my office is opposite, opposite a new um, institute, which is called the Institute of Making, where two of my staff went and learned to do blacksmithing. Um, a week ago, um, and we have the, figure, the, the pictures on our Facebook page to prove it. Um, the Institute of Making, you may think, is sort of like the frivolous end, but the, the uh, no, sorry, if anyone from the Institute of Making is here, it's not slightly frivolous. Um, but the, the humanities, but because of um, digital media, because of the web, because of you know, large data sets that we can now collect in our subject, because of all the, the, the riches of online um, uh, text material and archival material that has been digitized, which my own institute does, um, the possibilities for students in particular, graduate students, I watch it, um, are extremely rich and very wonderful. Um, and so within the research discipline, I think we've never had it so good. I don't have to talk the money because I'm fortunate enough to have somehow um, survived whatever the economic climate for an embarrassingly through embarrassing number of regimes and theories about the arts and humanities in government. Um, so um, first of all, there is that excitement of the actual, and, and digital humanities at UCL is non-pareil. It is spectacular and wonderful, and its director, Melissa Terrace, who's recently taken over from the director, Claire Warwick, ferment the kinds of excitement and really um, sh sharp edge research that I've always wanted to do, and thank you, Malcolm, for having me at UCL. But the point I wanted to end, come to, is the real as opposed, the actual, let's call it the actual as opposed to the virtual, is also coming into extraordinarily sharp focus because of the digital. Mm -hmm. And I stood in the Rijksmuseum last week, and Everyone who comes in wants to see the real thing desperately, and the crowds are just 
extraordinary. And they want to be photographed in front of the real thing because they want then to tell, to show their friends that they haven't just seen a high-res scan of um, the Night Watch. Um, they, they've, 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 they've been up close, they've seen the texture, they've seen the paint, they've seen the frame, they've, and they've experienced it. And this happened with book history and in my own career that we thought that with the, with, um, with, the, with the web we would lose a whole constituency of people interested in real books. Absolutely mm -hmm. not so. At the, it, it enhanced interest, it produced students who wanted to work with archives, who wanted to work with manuscripts, and that is again, I think, being redoubled with the current digital. So that, that my, I, I think that, I, I do think that it's a wonderful time for the arts, humanities, and social sciences, and I also think it's a wonderful time for encountering the real and, and, and making that an attractive uh, proposition for students who are coming, I think, ever closer to um, a practical, uh, material culture and practical, the practical, um, and indeed the sciences and engineering in the work that they do, and that is no bad thing. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Grayson, is the future digital for you? Uh, I well? think it will be digital, partly, yes. Um, I am in a business as yet, 3D printers haven't got mm -hmm. good enough to transport my work digitally across the world, thank God for that. I still, can, I still am in a very secure asset class production facility. Um, it's interesting that David mentioned sort of anxiety because every time this kind of argument about the future of the arts, my first port of call is always, this is a sort of cry for survival, you know, and often all the lovies, the provincial lovies get on their hind legs and go, oh, we're all going to die. And I kind of think, yeah, there's an exhibition at the British Museum at the moment of Ice Age art where they were making art when they, you know, survive was a matter of fighting off a cave bear or a glacier or something. And, so, and they did art even in those circumstances. So I don't think there's any danger of the arts dying out. Um, I mean, recently we've had Mrs. Thatcher dying and it sort of brackets my kind of career in the arts in many ways because I, I went to art school on the day, I went to my interview on the day she came to power and so I, I sort of came out of art college when the sort of uh, the effects of the, her government on the arts were very apparent by then, three years later. And uh, and again, art survived. You know, we made it out of cardboard um, and, you know, and spit, and, uh, you know, and, and we survived. Um, and of course, the modern equivalent of that will be digital. You know, it is very cheap now. You can make a film for nothing. You can record an album in your bedroom. You can self-publish a book. I mean, you know, the, all these things are positives of a digital, because there's a negative side of a digital, which is, of course, somebody else can publish a book, someone else can publish a film, someone else can play your music for free. And we, I had a discussion this evening about the Canberra recording when I first used to do talks like this. It was a novelty. They said, oh, we've got a little website. Is it all right if we film it for it? And I used to go, yes, that'd be lovely. Uh, thinking three people might visit it. Now, of course, a website for a university probably has the potential to be a major broadcaster. So I say, well, if you're going to pay me as much as the BBC, of course you can broadcast it. <laughs> Luckily, you know, that's not Why not much, have so, my yeah. material for free? So I predict one of the things we'll see in the future yeah. now is maybe a little revolution. Yeah. And people yeah. say, no, you can't have my content for free. And they won't put it on the internet. Because we're all the middle class people, all the bohem bourgeois bohemian, bohemians, are being ripped off. Um, you know, all these pirates like to think of themselves as freedom fighters, but they're basically impoverishing their peers. Um, in terms of education, 
I mean, I am a governor of the University of the Arts, so I see from the inside, you know, in, in the material terms, you know, we've got this huge new facility now by King's Cross, and more students than ever, and, you know, I'm sure the expertise is there. What worries me is the fact that it's getting the people, time and time again, we come to the getting the quality student actually to the gate of the university is the problem. And of course, if arts are cut in schools, for a lot of people like me, I would never have gone to an art gallery if we didn't have art lessons at school. I wouldn't be here now. I'd be in the army, probably. <laughs> so I would have never have gone, you know, if, if it wasn't. So if you're talking about children who don't discuss, you know. There, there was a man who came up to us right as we were waiting to come on here this, this evening. And he, and, he, and he looked at that quote. He said, oh, yes, my father gave me that book. We never had any books in my house. <laughs> So what about all the other kids that don't have that, you know, aren't exposed? That's school and, and the arts and that are so important. And of course now the arts has to speak the language to people like Dave. You know, it, it calls itself the creative industries now, which is like we always say slightly we're through gritted teeth, you know, because of course you know, uh, the arts is not about money. And paradoxically, as someone who you know is a production, the minute I start thinking, oh, I'm going to make money from this, it's probably not going to happen because you know we've seen it in a, on a kind of uh, on a kind of big scale when public funding is put into things like the national theatre and into galleries and they do experimental things and they try difficult things that perhaps the safe uh, private funding wouldn't back they become huge successes so there's a sort of paradox there of sort of freedom that does it you know, so the creative industries do need that public funding seed money to give confidence to its experimentation so. I see the future of the arts as, yes, they're not going to die out. And we've had this amazing boom over the last 20 years when, you know, every building now has every building, every provincial town seems to have a building that looks great from the air called an art gallery. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and it's all about gentrification. Whether that will go on and they won't be kind of like the new ruins of the future. I'm, you know, like sort of Pompeii. Oh, yes, I remember when we had an art business. <laughs> so I'm, I'm kind of have mixed. I have a mixed view of the future of the arts, you know, we'll see how it goes. But um, I do think public funding is incredibly important because it does the thing that fills the gaps that the market, God bless it, uh, can't do. Right. Thanks very much. We'll open up for questions just in, in a minute. But David, would you like to respond to anything there? I'm nothing obviously terribly critical of anything you said, but... Uh... I mean, I, I agree that these are inherently worthwhile subjects in their own right. The fact, and I'm very aware that you turn up as a minister and people ask you about the finances and you explain the financing system and it's kind of people are here because they love the building and this guy turns up and talks about the plumbing and so I realise that the inherent value, the reason why you are studying these subjects or researching or teaching them is independent of finance and uh, the economy most of the time, not in every discipline always, but most of the time, and that's how it should be. But nevertheless, someone has to work out a financing structure. And I think in answer to Grayson's challenge, I personally think that, the, that we have, fingers crossed, been successful in explaining to students that nobody has to pay up front. They pay back through PAYE only when they're earning more than 21,000. So when we look at the statistics about who's applying for university, the evidence is that people from the lowest income groups, we've just had a record year for application, the highest percentage of people from the poorest households, 18-year-olds have just applied for university than ever 
before in our records. So that's quite good. And then in terms of the subjects they choose, there is, in, um, um, with all the other panellists, there is an enormous appetite for the arts and humanities, and that is reflected in the subjects that students are choosing. And uh, I think all the evidence is that these subjects are growing. And, it's, and when you look at what's happening online and what's happening digitally, uh, the Open University were telling me there, I think their most popular course is uh, philosophy. You know, the, which you'll be relieved to hear. I mean, it isn't, it isn't the case that, soon, that people have, this is the right institution in which to use the following expression, a purely utilitarian view of these things. They do have, they have a whole range of interests. The problem that I frustrates me, and I think the nobody else tried to answer this challenge, why this anxiety in the arts? Why do we worry about things? My explanation is as follows, that unusually the English education system forces people to specialise very early on. So the two cultures, the old CPC, C.P. Snow, two cultures, lives on as a problem in England because there are lots of people who at the age of 16 have either written their last essay or done their last ever bit of maths and science and then they diverge in a uh, ruthless system of specialisation which very few other advanced Western countries impose. This is a distinctive feature of the English system. And my view is it's actually one of the consequences of it's basically a good thing, namely the autonomy of our universities, their power over admissions, and, and within universities, the power in individual faculty on their admissions. So if you're a bunch of physicists, you want 18-year-olds turning up who already know a lot of physics. And when you're teaching history, you want people to turn up who already know quite a bit of history. And so paradox I think this is actually driven by the demands of the academics running selection processes for universities, expecting 18-year-olds to know a lot of their subject. Uh, and so my view is that's where there is a problem. And the breadth of culture um, of people having some familiarity with the latest ideas in the sciences, but also having some familiarity with the arts and humanities, that is where we do have a problem. Uh, and I hope that the engagement of universities in A-levels will be taken by universities as an opportunity to make, to deliver the liberal arts education that Malcolm was describing, rather than to push and reinforce the pressures for specialisation too early. Thank you. I, I thought when you started you were going to say because of the two cultures, you know, people in the arts and humanities don't understand arithmetic, you can't add up, you know, so, and don't understand the finances. I'm relieved that that wasn't the direction <laughs> we, we went in there. Um, so let me take some questions. Anyone like to open the? So uh, Stephen Smith, down here. Thanks. Um, can I ask the panelists um, whether they think adult education or lifelong learning has a role to play in what perhaps is a more utilitarian or um, instrumental um, educational system? And if so, what can universities contribute um, in that area? I mean, my response immediately is I wouldn't be sat here without adult education because I learned pottery at adult evening mm. classes, which were very, very cheap. And I think, they, I think I paid two pounds a term fees because I was on the dole. And I think that, that kind of crossover where people who were on unemployment benefit got very cheap evening classes was a great one because 
the people in the evening class institute loved you know the fact they got their much fuller class they had a much less because the big problem often was drop-off rate with you know people they come at the first time all very keen and then by christmas they're kind of like mm, it's, you know, you've, got, you've got better things to do and so I think that you know that's that's something that they might revisit. I don't think it's like that now, but the fact that you could sort of rock up to an evening class for next to nothing, and you know, and me, I improved my and I and I met my wife at evening classes as well, because I, I went to creative writing evening classes. So, and where was this? Which college were you? This was at. I, I went. It was a, the, it, the first place was called the Central Institute. I think it's still there behind the uh, Capitol Radio building, and the second place was at University of London. So, yeah, I would not be a happily married and <laughs> successfully careered person without adult education, thank you. <laughs> so I say, yeah. top. Yeah. I mean, th this is an area where, of course, the government has been criticised in not, make, not allowing... Well, it, it, what are the rules? If, you're, if you don't have a degree, you can get a grant, can you? Or it, it's only if you're studying at the same level that you've got a problem? Yeah, well, this is the so-called ELQ policy, which I have to say was actually a decision, a policy implemented in the last years of the previous government, which we are, uh, whose consequences we're living with, and which I, uh, and I, I accept it, creates, it does create problems. And, and um, I would dearly like, uh, we probably have to do it bit by bit, I would dearly like to reverse the ELQ policy so people who already studied a degree would once again be financed for studying a second degree, but that was a change that came in in 2008, I think. Um, more widely, I, I'm, again, when the questioner, I have to challenge this assumption that it's all utilitarian and reductionist. Of course we talk the language of money and finance because that is the decisions one has to take, and a lot of the criticism of what we do are couched in terms of money. You're cutting things, or you've got rid of this teaching grant so it shows you're under-resourcing it. So you inevitably have to engage, uh, as, as you heard, as a minister. I'm condemned endlessly to engage with this subject in that way. That is part of the job. But it doesn't mean that people sit around thinking that the, that the sole purpose of, it, of um, education is utilitarian. And as I say, I... I I don't detect this agenda that's trying to um, drive people away from courses. We have a highly student-driven system. Sometimes it's denounced as, uh, you know, people criticise me for calling it consumerism, but we have a very unusual system. Essentially, universities lay on the courses that students wish to study, and students bring with them the funding to pay for the study of that course. That is, so essentially, it responds to your choices. And if people want to study French or history or philosophy, those are the courses that universities will lay on. If they want to study engineering, those are the courses the university will lay on. So that is, there is not, unlike many other countries, there isn't a central plan where we say we need 10,000 engineers and that's the number of engineering places and we can, 5,000 historians, that's quite enough, thank you very much, that's the number of places. We, we don't do it like that here and a good thing too. So uh, it's one where the, the pattern of the subjects people study a consequence of the choices that students make. And okay. I can't think of a more civilised way than that. I'd quite like to respond on that, actually, yeah. because um, uh, my father, my grandmother and my aunt all taught workers' education, WEA courses. Um, as, I, as a child, I mean, as, that was the landscape that I understood, that you know, everybody learned all of the time and that um, uh, and, and education didn't depend on access to funds. It was, um, 
And, uh, and actually, the one thing that I miss in my move from Queen Mary to University College is Queen Mary um, was extremely rich in so-called returners. In um, mm. apps, I mean, classes that I taught there, the age range would be from, could be from 17 to 70, actually. Um, and the master's course that I taught regularly um, had, had um, uh, older older students. Um, I thought that was incredibly enriching. There was um, the, the, those who returned brought with them all kinds of nuances of interest in paleography, textual bibliography, the things that mm. we were teaching. Um, it was incredibly enriching. I think, uh, if, if you like, the thing about adult education is um, it's a great benefit to the youth learners as well, um, yeah. and therefore is actually something that should really, I think, be encouraged as much as possible. Gentleman in the middle. I just, uh, I'd like to speak about that because I'm currently training as a further education teacher. I'm also an artist who have benefited, like yourself, from adult education when it still existed. And at the moment, they're telling us that actually they don't know what the future is for, um, they know what the future is for further education, but adult education mm. in terms of returners is almost non-existent. In fact, it's so under threat that I don't know what will happen. Because we're saying, oh, the, you know, <coughs> there are great positive things in the future, which I'm sure there are. But in terms of these things that we're talking about, adults benefiting younger people, I don't quite see where that is. Mm. Okay, OK, so we're running very short of time now. So I'll take another two quick questions, and then I'll ask each of the panelists to sum up. So one down here at the front. Please, and can I see another hand at the back there, yeah. and, and then. Okay. Hi. Um, first, first of all, for you all the guys talking about university, art's in a perfect place. I'm seeing some fantastically beautiful spreadsheets. <laughs> Secondly, I'd like to actually talk to, to, to Grayson, actually, about how, given that we have um, now, led by Mr. Hurst, multi-million pound industries in the arts world, what do you think the arts world can do for itself, because that is the future. It's, it's about us doing things for ourselves. What, what's your opinion on that? I mean, you, you yourself have a, a wonderful industry. Okay, so hold that reply mm. for a second. And the last question. Um, there seems to be an implicit, implicit assumption in m much of the questioning that having to justify the existence of the arts in utilitarian terms is necessarily a bad thing. But I wonder whether the, um, the, the pressure in artistic institutions to find an economic raison d'etre is always bad, or whether in some cases it's given a sort of backbone or a discipline to the process of deciding what you do and what you don't do that actually is quite positive. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So what we'll do is, I think if we come across the table towards me, starting with... Lisa, you've got about one minute each mm. for the comments, and then we need to finish, I'm afraid. That's really no pressure. Yeah. Um, the, the, I mean, I re was really interested in the question about addressed to Grace. I'd be really interested in his answer, so I won't deal with yours. Um, <laughs> but I think it was a very good question. Um, uh, the, this issue, I mean, and it's really interesting that we're tippy-toeing, and it's so hard on the two speakers on my far right, um, whether the economic, whether we're talking about, because we started with funding, whether we're talking about, whether we have just to justify everything we do in terms of economic outcomes, which I'm afraid our current 
DCMS minister seems to be rather keen on. But, the, but you're right, it's not in itself a bad thing. It, if it means keeping your feet on the ground and having an eye for what the future will hold for you and what you can contribute to the society, I'm thinking of my students, you know, I think it's quite a good idea that they might have some idea that they might be wanting to channel what they do towards future outcomes, benefits for the rest of the community. I'm blathering about it, but I'm just trying to say economic, as you say, does not is not a dirty word if it means that we're engaged with the community in which we live and learn. Okay, thank you. That's excellent timing. Grayson. Um, the art market and, and the art business is a strange, very esoteric, uh, un totally unregulated and mystifying beast and it's a kind of, mm. it's a dance between academe, art schools, artists, dealers, collectors, and so it's, it's an art critics as well. So the, it, 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 everybody's sort of bound up in it. And it's very inward looking in that, you know, um, there's successful artists who you've never heard of because they don't need the public because they have collectors and the dealers and, and whatever, so that's how it works. But the art world in the last 20 years has become incredibly more popular. And I think that you can't expect sort of this thing to sort of widen. Because what's interesting about the art market, there is no popular wing. We have a few popular artists, the sort of Banksy's and David Hockney's and people who have a real mass appeal. But on the whole, there's no equivalent of like pulp fiction or mass market. And so, but it will change, I think. But it's, it's a very interesting, because it's an asset group, and it depends on its sort of, in a way, it depends on its own snobbery and its own elitism in order for that status of the object to keep going. It's an interesting dance. It will happen slowly. I can't see it suddenly becoming this huge, like, thin, spread out sort of mass market thing where there's thousands of artists making okay living. It might happen eventually, I don't know. Could I, could I put one thing into that? I, mean, I know I'm interrupting your beautiful program, but, but I was a trustee of the VA for 10 years, and, and we would put putting fashion, um, fashion galleries yeah. together. The really extraordinary thing was not a single designer would give money to the galleries. I think that's what the question mm. was, was partly yeah. ended. The, that is the, 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 we never the found, you know, Paul Smith would not give a penny. Well, the, if you look at the names, if you look at the names Brilliant. over the gallery doors in the Tate Modern and in the V&A, they are the big art collectors. I mean, I mean, whether the art, and, and of course the art uh, dealers and, and, and artists, I go to a lot of fundraising dues and, you know, I give pieces to charity dues and all this sort of thing. So we do, I don't want, I don't want to sound like a cheesy DJ, you know, we do do things. We still give back. But probably not enough. Can continue that over drinks. So we've got two minutes left. And I can't, two can't follow the cheesy DJ. I, <laughs> that's great. I just want... <laughs> but there, was a, there was a point that came up before in Lisa's discussion about digital humanities. And just yeah. reflect on something that, that I was told today. I had lunch with a literary agent, and she said that um, a most recent novel that she had published, uh, within a matter of months, had had 120,000 downloads, and in hardback copy had sold 400. <laughs> now, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary conversion. Of, of, of what we always formally understood, which was that the, the book itself would survive mm. and the download would be ephemeral, completely the opposite way around. And I think that bears witness to uh, Lisa's comments about the sheer power of digitization in relation to the humanities and to the diffusion uh, of knowledge and to the diffusion of literature. 
The second point, um, adult education is not just returners, it's starters as well. It's people who did not turn out from their school perfectly formed uh, as, as David or um, Joe or, or the rest of us and, and went straight to university. People have mm. different careers, people do different things in life. But to come back and to start to study at a more mature age is really difficult and very challenging. I think institutions like the Open University and Birkbeck uh, do a terrific job. Uh, but we are now seeing uh, the numbers of mature age students uh, and part-time study starting to fall. And we don't know whether it's a consequence of fees or financial austerity or simply that people are finding other ways uh, of tapping into uh, information, into education. Mm -hmm. David, last word. Yeah, I, I think, I feel optimistic. In answer to the original question, I'm optimistic about the arts and humanities in this country. I think there's an enormous hunger for it and appetite for it, as Grayson said. And I think uh, institutions, universities, museums, art schools will try to meet that demand. I do think the challenge is actually less on the economic side. I'm going to break free from that. But I do think the challenge is the interaction between art and science, between art and technology. I don't, this is new. There is the argument, after all, isn't that the Impressionists were able to paint outdoors because people had started being able to put paint into tubes, and that, that you can't understand Impressionism without understanding advances in the technology of, of paint. Well, nowadays, I do think that the speed of technological art makes new art forms possible and creates new challenges for how the arts work. At the Open Data Institute, which is... Um, essentially devoted to trying to uh, di the digital economy, they had a fascinating exhibition of art objects trying to link the arts with what they were doing. And I, there was something that I found surprisingly effective and moving, which was that they had got a, an installation which was scanning the web for the frequency of use of certain key uh, uh, bad words, um, hunger, war, famine, or something. And then this object was reacting and changing color in accordance with every few seconds what the web was telling you was the frequency of these words flashing across the web. And that was just an attempt to try to link artistic expression and some of the really hard-edged, drier technologies that I uh, see a lot as a science minister. And I think that's where there is an awful lot to do, and that's why I do worry about these two cultures. I do think that the attempts to create art out of the discovery of the Higgs boson, and some of the things that Charlie Jenks and others are doing, trying to link different disciplines, is where there are some very exciting challenges. And I'm sure it will be students, graduates, uh, teachers at UCL, who are in the forefront of rising to those challenges. <laughs> Thank you very much. So can you join me in thanking all the speakers? All the speakers. <laughs>